Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My guest today is Nicolas Tanzer, a French philosopher, analyst and author of numerous texts about the issues of security and strategy. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. I speak to Nicolas Tanzer about the similarities between Nazism and Stalinism and Putinism, morality in politics and the need for more Western involvement in the fight against Putinist Russia. The goal of the series Thinking in Dark Times is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our humanitarian and volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Nicolas Tanzer, thanks so much for joining this podcast. My pleasure. So uh, you are, uh, in fact, very present in the discourse, in the French discourse about this war. And uh, from what I hear from you, you are describing this war in many aspects uh, as, a, as a moral question. Not only geopolitical question or political question or even legal question, but moral question. You are uh, somebody who is talking about the evil, evil of Putinism. When we compare this kind of, can we can we call Putinism an absolute evil? Can we compare it with the Nazism, for example? What do you think? Oh, I think there are two points in your questions. Uh, first of all, my answer is yes, definitely. We can compare uh, certainly what uh, Russia is doing in Ukraine and what it did before in Chechnya or in Syria or even in Georgia or in some African countries with what uh, Hitler was doing. Of course, all the circumstances are completely different. It's not exactly the, the same kind of war. Uh, he, um, Putin is not planning just to, to, to destroy the, the Jews. And there is uh, certainly a kind of anti-Semitism in, in Russia, but not comparable to, to Hitler's, of course. But if we see the intent, which is the full destruction of a nation, I think we can compare to what Hitler was attempting to do with the Jews. Uh, that's the same kind of annihilation project, the same kind of nihilist intent. Uh, there is the same kind of full disrespect for human lives as such. And when Hitler was comparing the Chechens uh, or labeling them as terrorists, when he is labeling the Ukrainians as Nazis, it's giving the army a blank check or a free hand to fully destroy them physically. You mean Putin? You mean Putin, Putin absolutely. Mean, yeah. I think Putin, Putin exactly has the same intent of full destructions of the nations that Hitler has with the Jews. And some people are telling me, well, you are exaggerating. But I am also speaking from my own standpoint uh, because the sister of my grandmother's uh, was sent to Auschwitz and never came back. My own mother, who was a resistant, 
uh, was in uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp. So for me, from my own personal historic legacy and what I see in Ukraine, I have absolutely no doubt about it. But there is a second point, I think, in your questions. Can we speak in international relations about evil and even absolute evil? I think that, yes, we must. And it's not something that we have to separate from what we call geopolitics. In fact, because when you have a country intending to destroy another country, if you have a country like Russia, like also Syria, of course, and some others, basically committing mass crimes deliberately, purposely, I think that's part of geopolitics. It tells us about the very nature of the regime. It tells us about the geostrategic intent or ambition of this country. So the idea that there is, on the one hand, morality, and on the other hand, geopolitics, is utter nonsense, in my view. Uh, because had we, I will say, not turned a blind height to what Putin was committing in Chechnya, for instance, or in Syria, and we know that Russian troops in Syria killed more Syrian civilians than even ISIS did, it tells us about the very nature intentions of the regime. And in fact, whereas the world leaders basically looked the other way, Uh, it gave Putin a free hand to commit more crimes, more slaughters. So basically, I think the kind of crimes that Putin was committing, and is still committing in Ukraine, uh, is a true indication about its geopolitical intents. Do you think that uh, to understand this war, it is primarily there are some political reasons for Putin? I mean, the the intention to re-establish the empire. I mean, we all know this phrase of Clausewitz that war is continuation of politics with other means, etc. And when you say that, you actually think that the, the, the primary reason of any war and any, any violence is, is some high political reasons. Whereas for, for us Ukrainians, uh, when we look at this war, we actually see that there was no political reasons for, for, for Putin to make this war. There is something deeper maybe psychological, psychoanalytical, something like that. So that kind of a culture of violence which was present and which is present in Russian society, it just spills over. And uh, Putin understands that the war is the only kind of a means to canalize this, cul this uh, culture of violence. How do you perceive it? Well, uh, actually, I think that there are many different kind of reasons, but I don't think that the willingness to reestablish the former Soviet empire or the Tsarist empire is, I mean, the main reason uh, for this war. I mean, that's a kind of, I will say, uh, exposed dressing of this war. Of course, we can see an intent of neo-imperialisms or neo-colonialism in Putin's speeches or other cronies of the regime, certainly. But I think the, the crime is the message, and the crime is the intention, that's the primary intention. Uh, because had Putin the willingness to reestablish the empire, he would have a kind of concern for its economy, 
But what we consider since uh, 23 years is the full decline of Russian economy. You don't have SMEs, I mean, uh, high valuable SMEs in Russia. Just see the very poor um, state of infrastructures in Russia. Just see, for instance, the, the terrible uh, outcome of the COVID-19 crisis with probably more than one million deaths in Russia. Just see the state of the schools, of the research apparatus. Just see, I mean, the brain drain, the capital flows. Uh, so basically, Putin is not really able to restore any kind of empire because I don't know if it's 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, but Russia will have disappeared in any event as a great power as the world stage, certainly. Uh, even if uh, Putin is able to capture Ukraine or Georgia or to recapture fully Belarus or other countries, it would, it would not make an empire. This the empire is something completely unsustainable for Russia as it is now. Uh, so I think that the willingness of Putin is maybe to canalize this kind of violence, but in fact Putin has nurtured this violence. I don't think that violence is in the very nature or DNA of uh, Russian society, because I don't think that there is any kind of DNA of a nation as such. I am very suspicious about the language of, let's say, the soul of the people or something like this, which is a kind of culturalism. Uh, that certainly, I mean, uh, has no ground. Uh, but I think that uh, Putin is basically nurturing this kind of violence because basically he's a mafia boss. Uh, just see what Catherine Belton depicted in her book uh, about the, the years of Vladimir Putin already in St. Petersburg uh, with uh, Anatoly Sobchak. Uh, he was already a gangster. And all the people, or quite all the people surrounding him, are gangsters. They are linked to the mafias. Uh, not only Prigozhin, but also many others. So basically, Putin is a kind of Totorina or Al Capone, in a way. Uh, I mean, uh, nothing else. But, of course, he's the president of the state, and he has nukes. But, I mean, the difference uh, between the mafia boss and Putin uh, is absolutely uh, not existing. Uh, so he has certainly this kind of mindset. Uh, he don't has has a project, a positive project for Russia. Uh, he is creating the misfortune of Russian people, of course, of other nations like uh, Ukrainian, Syrians, uh, Belarusians, Georgians, etc. Uh, but he has absolutely no intent of grandeur for for, for Russia. Yes, the, that's uh, that's also what we feel in Ukraine, and uh, there is some thinking that says that actually the key motivation in this war is confirmation of your uh, of Putin's feeling of impunity, and there is something that we need to also keep in mind that Putin is the heir of those uncovered the Cheka KGB people who are enjoying this impunity, and uh, contrary to Nazism, which was condemned on Nuremberg trial and then historically, culturally condemned in the, in the minds of, of, of German society and European societies, the Stalinism and communism, dead side, criminal side, were never actually condemned, and these people are now ruling Russia. And this feeling of impunity, 
that I will do something to you and you will never respond to me. You will never be able to respond. This kind of enjoyment of this kind of a sadistic feeling, I think there is one of the reasons of this war. I don't, I don't say the primary reason, but there is something in this, some geopolitical psychoanalysis. No, no, I fully you know? agree. I fully yeah. agree with you. I, I think that's a, a, even if, the, I think in the legacy of Putin, it's not only communist legacy, it's not only NKVD or KGB legacy. I think it's something more complex because if we see what I called in one of my pieces, uh, the Putinian ideology, uh, it's something like a mix. It's a mix of, let's say, old communism, uh, instrumentalizations of the orthodox religions, uh, part of Nazism, and I think that uh, Timothy Schneider explains that very well with the reference uh, to uh, Ivan Ilin, for instance, uh, who was an agi and he was really habilitated by, by Putin. Uh, also a mix of Stalinisms, of cults of death, uh, of Eurasianism, uh, label by Dugin and others. Uh, so you have a kind of ideology, but the problem is that for the Western elite, they didn't perceive the, this kind of ideology. For communism, it was easy. You had a communism because you have the manifesto of the Communist Party, you have the, all the textbooks uh, from Lenin or even Stalin, uh, uh, or China, you have, of course, the, the, the red, little red book by Mao Zedong, or in, also, you know, let's say in Libya, you have the, the, the little green book by Gaddafi. Uh, you have this kind of thing. But for Putin, you don't have a kind of unique book uh, in which all his ideology is captured. But it doesn't mean that there isn't ideal ideology. You have an ideology of Putinism, uh, which is something very, I will say, uh, very poor, in fact. Uh, has absolutely uh, no reach for, I will say, some, I would say, the average intellectuals, uh, you know, certainly. But that's ideology of destruction, of pure destructions. Uh, when I labeled it a, a kind of nihilist project uh, based on the no future, in fact, that's probably the best characterization, in my view, of Putinist ideology. Uh, and then you have another component, which is a totalitarian component, uh, because I think it was well explained by Masha Gessant, uh, you know, and, and some others. You have a kind of totalitarianism, you know, within Putin's ideology and within no uh, Russian society. Uh, and you have some things that Hannah Arendt was well depicting in her book on uh, totalitarianism, which is the movement per se. And Putin is in a way uh, compelled to move, to move through war, destructions, uh, repression at home, uh, surveillance of uh, any kind of dissidence, uh, and this kind of thing. You have the movements that is the very characterizations of totalitarian ideology. And you have this, you know, uh, in Putin's regime, as you had, of course, with Hitler's. Yeah, the, you mentioned Hanar, and this is remarkable how uh, she actually was very, very clear. It was, I think, in 1951, the book, Origins yes, of exactly. Totalitarianism. She was so much clear, and, and, and this is still 70 years after. It's so clear, book is so clear, and so much comparing and, and putting both Nazism and Stalinism, communism, in the perspective. And sometimes I sho I'm shocked when I traveled uh, in various European countries, in particularly in Germany. That's a very difficult thing to say, even today, 
when you say that Nazism and, and communism, Stalinist communism, was two types of absolute evil. Uh, it's very difficult to say even today because uh, uh, you you kind of uh, you are in the position of somebody who relativizes Nazism, and, and this is not what 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 we are doing. We are saying, of course, Nazism is an absolute evil, but there are different types of other absolute evil as well. Absolutely. I had some time also this kind of discussion with other Jews, being Jewish myself. Uh, and I said, of course, you had the crime of crimes, which was the Holocaust. But you have other crimes against humanity or other genocides. Uh, you had the Armenian genocide. Uh, you had the uh, genocide uh, against Tutsis uh, made by uh, Hutu in Rwanda. Uh, you had the, the Cambodian genocide. And you, you have, of course, the kind of Ukrainian genocide. And you had the Chechnyan genocide also, always uh, made by Putin himself and decided by Putin. So, of course, we cannot compare exactly. It's not exactly the same history. It's not the same context, of course. But I think we must have this kind of consciousness. Uh, you know, we know that, of course, the, the, the already, you know, uh, in the former USSR, there was absolutely no place for the Holocaust. It was not denied exactly by the Holocaust truces, but it was completely, in a way, uh, concealed. Because uh, Stalinism, the Russian people. Stalinism continued the Holocaust after absolutely. the Second World War. Absolutely. In the 40s and in the 50s, yes. right? Exactly. And when we, ha we, we are witnessing right now the, 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 the rehabilitation of Stalin is because the best way to whitewash the crimes that Putin and Russia are committing right now is also to whitewash uh, the Stalinist crimes. Uh, and I think that uh, the day Russia will be free, if this day happens, uh, that I don't know certainly for sure, uh, will be when you will have enshrined in the very consciousness of the people uh, the awareness and also the feeling of guilt about the Stalinist crimes and the Putinist crimes when you will have in Russia memorials paying tribute uh, to the victims of Stalinism and the victims of Putinism, uh, including the Ukrainian people and Chechen people, and Georgian people, Syrian people, etc. And I think that's absolutely what must happen. Otherwise, uh, if we don't have this kind of consciousness, uh, I mean, basically, I mean, it's, there is absolutely no possibility for Russia to be free again. And what we would expect from, I will say, not the next, but maybe a Russian president, uh, is the kind of speeches uh, that was uttered by uh, the president of Germany, Richard von Weinzecker, on uh, the 8th of May 1985, in which he acknowledged the crimes of the German people. And I think that's very important not to say, no, it's only Putin. No, it's Putin, his cronies, his minions, uh, part of, of course, the, the, the FSB, uh, SRU, and the other uh, Russian entities, but also that's the guilt of the Russian people even if so, not all of them are guilty personally before justice. Some of them obviously are and must, of course, be accountable before justice. But this kind of moral guilt is absolutely essential 
to move forward? I think when we look at the Stalinist crimes and, and we look at the destiny of those people who actually show them, like Memorial in Russia, and how Memorial became a, a banned organization, we see clearly this battle of uh, not only of historical narratives, but battle of the visions of morality, right? So what Putin is trying to do is to say that those people who are killing others in the 30s, 40s, 50s, sending them to, to Gulag, they are the just people. And those who are trying to discover their crimes and uh, uncover their crimes, they are the bad people. And therefore, they, should be, they are foreign agents and therefore they should be banned. So indeed, there is a continuity between Stalinism and, uh, and Putinism. Let's move from Russia to other regions and uh, let's talk about the world today. Uh, and first, my first question is about uh, this famous uh, International Criminal Court uh, arrest warrant on Putin. Do you think that this produces irreversible consequences with regard to Western elites? Because we all know that there is some mood in the in the Western elites, including in the French elites and uh, President Macron, to still con continue conversations with Putin, etc. Do you think we cross the line with this uh, with this uh, decision by International Criminal Court? and uh, Putin will no longer be an interlocutor for the Western elites? Uh, well, I, I, I would say it should. I'm not sure it would. Uh, because for me, I mean, the fact that we have this ICC decision to prosecute Putin and also uh, Lvova Belova, and certainly others will follow, uh, is something of tremendous importance. Basically, no leaders, no Western leaders, no democratic leaders should sit down with Putin, talk with Putin, engage with Putin. Uh, but the fact is that there is these decisions, but the crimes committed by Putin and others were already known. I remember... It was during the World Cup uh, in 2018. Uh, I, I, I just called for boycotting the World Cup. Uh, but I was a lonely voice. Uh, we had in France? In, in France. France. In France. We had uh, the Green leader, uh, Yannick Jadot, I remember, who was also signing uh, also a call for boycotting the World Cup. But he was the only one. And I said to many leaders, including Macron at that time, but just look... You, you cannot sit, congratulate, love uh, with uh, someone who has already committed massive war crimes, who actually killed dozens or maybe hundreds of thousands, you know, in Chechnya, uh, Syria, uh, and already uh, since uh, 2014 in Ukraine. But you see, there is no consciousness of what the war crimes or crimes against humanity mean. Uh, it was, I mean, just going back to your first questions, because I mean it's completely related. Uh, if you don't uh, introduce, in a way, uh, into geopolitics uh, the very notions of crimes and the notion of evil, you don't understand the regime. And in my view, uh, th there is still this tendency in France and maybe other countries just to basically minimize uh, 
the decision of the ICC because they want also to minimize uh, the very concept of human rights and international law. Uh, they try to separate international laws on the one hand and geostrategy in the other one. And I, I think that's a, a, true, a true problem, the true problem of mindset and the true problem of misunderstanding of what international relations are based upon. Uh, that's, in my view, the, 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 the true concern. And I think that... Uh, Maybe Macron and others were a little bit disturbed by the decisions of the ICC. They perceived it maybe as a kind of interference into the diplomatic game because they are still considering that there is a diplomatic game that is worth playing with Putin's Russia. Uh, they do not understand the very concept that I forced recently of war diplomacy. In war diplomacy, it's basically the contrary of classical diplomacy. But you still have some diplomats in France, I mean, not only uh, President Macron, but some others who are saying basically diplomacy is all about talking with everyone, whoever he or she is. And I mean, that's a, a true problem. That's a true problem of basically misunderstanding of uh, the very notions Uh, of international relations. It was already, in fact, pointed out by Raymond Aron in the, in the 60s. Uh, in one of uh, his uh, essays, uh, Raymond Aron said, basically, we have to understand the reality of international game, not to consider the state as kind of, let's say, essences, but basically as regimes. And I think that Macron and some others they are not considering the regime. They are considering Russia as a kind, or China, or whatever country, uh, in kind of, like, uh, we'll say, uh, um, uh, untimely essences. Uh, but they are not considering the, 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 the political dimensions of the regime. I mean, that's one of the, 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 the conceptual biases, which is very, in my view, very invasive, in the diplomatic circles in Western Europe, but also maybe in the US uh, right now. So you mentioned China, of course, and uh, this leads to another question. So in a situation when it is difficult to talk to Putin uh, in this situation, uh, the European leaders are going to China, Macron and Ursula von der Leyen, and uh, etc. China is trying to position itself as a big mediator. Do you believe that it is a big mediator? Do you believe that uh, we should talk to China? Or rather, we are witnessing a new polarization and uh, we just need to, to take this uh, as, as it is. There is a new polarization of the world with authoritarian countries on one side and uh, democratic countries on, on, on the other side. And therefore, for example, when Chinese leader is going to Moscow, the Japanese leader is going to Kiev. And that also shows this polarization. What do you think? Well, first of all, uh, I think that, well, let's say, discussing with China, why not? But I often make the distinctions between discussions or talks, dialogue, 
and negotiations. And that's completely different. Talking with China, why not? But to do what? And especially you mentioned the position of mediator that maybe uh, China, but also probably Macron, is uh, um, trying is the kind of roles that they are trying to embrace. Uh, first of all, I would say that uh, basically Ukraine doesn't need a mediator but a lies. We don't need a mediator in the war. Uh, I mean, full stop. Uh, and I think that there will be the firm blunders or failures that Macron and others could make with China or Turkey or Israel or any kind of country if they are trying to seek a mediator for the war against Ukraine. We need Ukraine's victory. We need Ukraine to recapture all its territories with no distinction. And I think that, of course, Crimea is not uh, obviously uh, something uh, that we could uh, distinguish from the other parts of Ukraine. It's exactly, exactly the same. Uh, we need uh, the full punishments uh, of the people guilty of war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, crimes of genocide, and crimes of aggressions, because there are those full four categories of crimes. Uh, we need the payments of war damages. We may need to have, of course, all the, the children deported to Russia back. We have all the artifacts stolen by Russia back to Ukraine, etc., etc., And I think there is no room for negotiation, first of all. The second thing, more specifically about China, is certainly that Russia has a preference. And the preference of Russia is that Putin remains in power, or something like Putin, at least. Uh, because China wants, certainly, to control Russia. It has the means to do so. And with a dictators ruling Russia, it will be easier than if we had a democratic regimes uh, supported by the West in Russia. The second thing is, like all the dictators, Xi Jinping fear, of course, unrest revolutions at home. And if we have, of course, a democratic power in Russia, there could be in his mind at least, a kind of contagious effect uh, that can, could reach China. And that's the same for many other countries, also the Gulf countries. Uh, of course, also Syria and also Venezuela, Cuba, etc. Uh, so basically, you have this kind of uh, the division of the world that you mentioned. And the question is that we have to certainly find against all the revisionist powers I'm not sure there is a kind of true alliance between China and Russia, if we mean a military alliance like NATO, for instance, because basically you have, I mean, basically a elephant and a moose, and I mean this kind of alliance isn't just not sustainable. But basically China will continue to support Russia because it has an interest to have a revisionist power in Russia. That's all. Uh, so we certainly have also to oppose China. We have to become less dependent on China as well. Just imagine we were fi we finally succeeded 
uh, to get rid of uh, in Europe at least and in the US of the, all the fossil fuels uh, coming from Russia. Uh, quite, not completely, but quite, which is a good move. But just imagine that China is entering a war, let's say, with Taiwan or other countries. We in Europe, but also in the US, would be just unable to impose the sanctions, the kind of sanctions on China that we were able to impose on Russia. And that's a factor of dependency. That's a factor of blackmail. Uh, so we have to go to get serious about this kind of division of the world. And we are still not. What about other countries with which Russia is trying to play the game? For example, India. India and China are in this new foreign policy doctrine, a draft doctrine that was published recently by Russia, whereas Russia is proclaimed as Eurasianist state civilization. So we see clearly that Duginist ideas have won in Russia, right? Uh, but uh, China and India are, are presented as big allies. And India, despite the fact that it is democracy, uh, it, 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 still, uh, it still has a very, very ambiguous position with regard to Russia's invasion. What do you think of it? First of all, it's not completely new. Uh, I remember some talks with uh, Indian diplomats uh, in the early uh, 2010s. Uh, they were already uh, always to have a kind of balance between Russia and the US and Europe. Uh, they are, were not able just to express a kind of straightforward positions vis-à-vis uh, -vis Russia at certain times. But the problem is that this problem has basically increased with Modi. Because you say that uh, India is a democracy. Yes, formally it is. But when we see, you know, uh, Modi's politics at home, uh, it's everything but democratic. Uh, you have an authoritarian power. Uh, you don't have formally a dictatorships, but we have a very authoritarian power uh, with a lot of repressions, uh, especially of the Muslims inside, of the opposition as well. Uh, and so basically you have the kind of alliances between dictatorships uh, that Russia and China basically intend to frame uh, with other countries. Uh, so when uh, the US and also France consider basically India as a kind of partner in the Indo-Pacific region just to deter or to counter China, uh, I think it's basically full the game. Uh, because, uh, in fact, even there, there is this opposition between China and the uh, and Rep People's Republic of, uh, of China, uh, you know, especially over the, the, the Kashmir regions. Uh, okay. Uh, in fact, uh, India uh, is basically not siding with democracies in this part of the world, and especially right now. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you had a change... Uh, you know, in China, uh, you had a change in uh, in, um, in 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 India, uh, with uh, powers uh, becoming increasingly uh, assertive, 
because certainly Xi Jinping is not like uh, Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin, uh, certainly that we know. And uh, also Narendra Modi is not exactly the kind of leaders that we had before, let's say the, 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 the Gandhi dynasties uh, and, and some others. You have a new kind of leaders. Uh, and I mean, that's uh, really frightening. Uh, and that's why I think that uh, the US and the EU countries are not uh, serious enough about India. They are not trying enough to, to pressure India and to say to India, well, basically, uh, choose your side. And I think we have to express the things like they are. When Ukraine is looking at the world, okay, there is, uh, there is this Western countries who are mainly allies, right? Some of them are decisive allies, some of them are not decisive allies, some of them are Trojan horses. Uh, Hungary, you mean? Uh, for example. But still there is kind of a, this support. Uh, and then you have clear those countries who are against Russia, Belarus, uh, and some of its allies, <coughs> Assange, Syria, um, who are voting against Eritrea, uh, yes, who are, who are voting Nicaragua. against anti-Russian uh, resolutions? Then you have those countries who are keep neutrality, right? China, uh, India, uh, Central Asian states who normally even don't vote sometimes, right, uh, on these issues. And then you have lots of other countries: Africa, Latin America, Asia, Middle East, and Ukraine is not really working well with these countries because of the lack of the resources and uh, not so much tradition of this, you know, global politics. Uh, do you think that Ukraine should be thinking of some of these countries to seek allies? And if seeking allies, where should, should Ukraine search for allies except for, uh, apart from the Western world? Well, I think it's a, it's a very difficult question uh, because I know also that the diplomatic resources, you said, you know, are very limited. Uh, but I think that with uh, major African countries, uh, they could do something. Uh, I don't know which with exactly, but uh, certainly with countries like uh, Nigeria, that could be very useful. Uh, the very idea is also maybe to, to, to gain, I mean, the support from South Africa. I'm not sure that it's possible because you know that Lavrov was visiting uh, South Africa some months ago, uh, that South Africa is uh, one of the members of the BRICS, uh, etc. Uh, but still, I mean, there are maybe some opportunities it is uh, for 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 uh, for Ukraine to 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 work there. There's also a problem, other problems of country like Indonesia, for instance. Uh, Indonesia is uh, one of the key Asian countries, even if it has a kind of uh, of neutrality. That's the le legacy of uh, Bandung 1955, of course. But uh, but still, I think Indonesia is on the western side. You have also Philippines, uh, uh, you know, certainly that feel threatened by by, by China, who is a key ally of the U.S. Uh, uh, whatever we think about the regimes uh, right now, but uh, I'm seeing that's a key country. And you have also some, uh, some uh, countries who are in a kind of very ambiguous positions, but I'm not sure that we'll be very able to, to, to gain them, such as, for instance, Brazil. And for instance, Brazil uh, is also the, very tempted by a kind of uh, both sidesisms, you know, in the, Ukraine, in the Russian war against Ukraine, uh, certainly. Uh, so it's uh, it's uh, it's very difficult, but I mean that must be also part of the the job of the West also to do so, uh, certainly with Ukraine. Uh, 
Uh, and I am not sure that uh, most of the Western centuries are doing this job uh, very properly. Of course, you had the, the speech of Macron in the UN, you know, in September uh, 2022. And it was a good speech, I must say, uh, saying, of course, neutrality is not possible. Uh, basically because Russia is violating basically the very principles you are supposed to stand for, uh, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. Also, you see that Russia is threatening uh, some of those countries, of course, with, uh, uh, with the blackmail on, on the, the grain exports, uh, etc. Uh, but I think that the, the West also should be more active, and especially we perfectly know that some of those countries Uh, including Morocco, who is supporting Ukraine, is still buying, you know, Russian oil. For instance, uh, you have other countries, not only India and China, who are buying uh, Russian oil or gas. Uh, and I think that's also the uh, the job of the Western countries also to to provide in the long terms, not only a question of short terms uh, operations, uh, more reinsurance. Uh, that they won't suffer shortages uh, of uh, either raw materials, uh, energy sources, or food uh, because uh, of the Russian war against Ukraine. And I think that we have to convince those countries that's basically dealing with Russia and also up to a certain point uh, with, with China is a no way. And there was also a very interesting proposal made by uh, Ursula von der Leyen, supported by uh, the other EU countries, which was, you know, the initiative uh, Build Back a Better World, uh, which was very interesting, which was also, we have certainly to bolster Western investments, especially in Africa, to basically counter also uh, Rand Road Wild Belt initiative from China. Uh, because if we have too much investment coming from Russia or from China, it means basically more corruptions, uh, ill governance, uh, and predations of natural resources uh, from those countries. So we have to offer a new vision of the world. Uh, because if we are not only, I mean, uh, blaming, for instance, those countries for circumventing the sanctions, for instance, uh, it will lead nowhere. We have to offer those countries some counterparts, concrete counterparts, and show that they do not have an interest uh, to continue their nasty game uh, with uh, Russia uh, and also uh, China. Uh, but that supposes to have a long-term view, and I am very not sure also in the war in Ukraine, and maybe we can come back to the war in Ukraine, that also those countries, including the US, have the big picture in the long term. Let us come back to, to the West uh, and the West's position with regard to Russian invasion. And I think there are two fears uh, which are actually present in the Western countries. The first fear is the nuclear. So people are afraid of nuclear attack. And uh, Russia is using this nuclear blackmail all the time. Should we be afraid of this nuclear blackmail? What is your position? And uh, the second one is the uh, the fear of the Russia decomposition, decomposition of the Russian Empire. This is something in Ukraine we talk very easily about, and uh, we actually see that you know this process of Russian invasion can also be interpreted as the last days of the imperialism, this kind of a result of empire's weakness and uh, maybe the first days of its future collapse. 
And why can't we imagine a smaller Russia? Why there was the imperialization of British, French Empire, Dutch Empire, Spanish Empire? Why can't we envisage the deimperialization of Russian Empire? What do you think of these two fears? First of all, I would say, please, please do do not be afraid. Certainly, uh, and that's something that I'm, I keep repeating, you know, relentlessly in all the TV shows I was in uh, since uh, February the twenty fourth. There are some words that we should not use: red lines, co-belligerence, escalation. Stop using those words. Stop buying the Russian narrative. In my view, just to answer directly your first questions, I am not serious. There is absolutely no risk of Russia using, of course, nukes. But I think that this risk is very, very narrow. First of all, I am not sure that uh, Putin will risk that because basically he is fearing for his own life. And he perfectly knows that if he decides to use nukes, that will be the end of him as a person. Not so talking about the, the end of Russia, because basically he doesn't care. He doesn't care about Russia, he doesn't care about you know the Russian people. I mean, certainly nothing's concerned, but about him. Then we do not know if the chain of command will basically work. We do not know what we'll do, let's say, uh, Shoigu or Gerasimov. Of course, they are very close to Putin, that we know. But if there is an order made by Putin to use nukes against either Ukraine or another country, uh, I am not sure that uh, Gerasimov or Shoigu will take the risk. Then, of course, even if they are the three decision makers, concretely, you have, of course, the other parts of the chain of command. I'm not sure that they will follow. And that's also a risk that the US especially and the other allies could very easily monitor. Uh, so basically I say that there is very, very low risk for Russia to do that. That's the first point. The second point is that basically, in my view, we must stop buying the very idea that there are red lines. Basically, we must consider the red lines of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian government. But why should we give a priority to the alleged red lines expressed by Russia? There's absolutely no sense. Uh, I mean, the, the, the guide must be international law, both the international laws on the borders and the international laws uh, of course, linked to basically criminal law and humanitarian law. That's all. Uh, and um, in my view, we have also to, 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 to consider that the real risk for Ukraine is to have some parts of it still occupied by Russia. Because if we have still part of, let's say, Crimea, or part of Donbass or other regions occupied by Russia, it will mean more torture, more forced disappearances, murders, deportations of children, etc. So it's just not acceptable by law. I mean, that's the first point. Um, the second point, 
uh, was um, sorry, it was about the about the fear of decomposition of Russia. Oh yes, I mean that is story. History will decide. Uh, basically, if the, the the Russian people of some regions, uh, let's say Buratia or Chechnya or Ingushia or other regions, want basically to be free, if you have a referendum, I mean fair referendum, with international observers, clear monitoring, sincere votes. And if those regions want to be free from Moscow, from Moscovia, as one says, why not? I mean, that's exactly the same kind of process uh, that we were witnessing uh, 60 or 70 years ago uh, in India or in Africa or, you know, also in part of Asia or Pacific regions, etc., I mean, that's just a normal process. Why to be afraid? I mean, there is no reason. Of course, there is the problem of nukes, because we know that nukes are disseminated, uh, you know, in many parts of the Russian territory. But that's something that certainly the US and others can monitor. And I don't see why there would be more risk to have nukes in some countries, I mean, no independent countries, that there are no in Russia. That's exactly the same kind of risk. But I will say that the risks that we could certainly more easily monitor than if we have nukes only detained by a very centralized and autocratic Russian regime. And really, I do not understand this fear. But I think that's part of, let's say, the imaginary mindset of many Western leaders. Uh, you know, and the, that's a true problem, because many of those leaders in the West, in the US or in France or in Germany, uh, they made a kind of implicit hierarchy between the different powers. They consider at first what they call the great powers, the US, of course, uh, maybe the UK and France, which is a middle power with nukes, so it's a little bit different than the permanent seat in the UN Security Council, etc. Or maybe India, etc. Or maybe Brazil. Maybe not Indonesia, which is a country of more than uh, 320 million people. Okay. But then you have medium-sized small countries. And basically... Those world leaders, before the, the new full-scale invasion of Ukraine, didn't pay attention to Ukraine, they didn't pay attention to Belarus, to, to Georgia, to Baltic countries, uh, but also to Taiwan, let's say, etc. Uh, and I think that's a true mistake. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, Milan Kundera was writing about the small nations. And the small nations probably are the examples of freedom. They are the examples of true nations. And certainly nowadays we perceive that Ukraine intrinsically has more values than Russia. That the Ukrainian people, certainly, uh, you know, that's good people, uh, courageous people, intelligent people, uh, smart people, certainly smarter than the Russian people. 
I mean, so we cannot compare those countries. And I am very afraid, quite often I said to Western leaders, you have to go to Kyiv. Myself, I was 20 times to Kyiv in Ukraine, not only to Kyiv, to Lviv, to, to Odessa, to, to, to other places in Ukraine, 20 times. But I know many French uh, intellectuals or even uh, uh, foreign policy experts, uh, not talking about the president and uh, many ministers or MPs, at least before the new war, they never went to Ukraine or they never went to the Baltic State and Georgia as well, I mean. Because it was a kind of, let's say, neglect for or even contempt for those kind of countries. And if you have, let's say, in Russia, you have a new country named, let's say, Buryatia or Ingushia or Chechnya with a free leader, not Kazerov, of course. Well, they will be very nice countries, depending on their governments, of course. But very valuable countries certainly as valuable than Russia. Let's hope for this. And maybe last question, uh, what should Ukrainian Ukraine's allies do? What should Western Ukrainian allies do? France, UK, Germany, United States in the near future. First of all, send all the weapons Ukraine's needs. Weapons and ammunition, of course. And swiftly, as swiftly as possible. Myself, I made 11 TV shows and radio shows on February the 24th, I mean 2022. And I said clearly, publicly, we have to take our part in the defense of Ukraine. We should take action ourselves. Probably not with boots on the ground, but certainly with air support from all planes, from all missiles that should target Russians' tanks or other weapons as long as they are in the soil of Ukraine. And I could repeating that now. But if, and I understand this, that the Western leaders do not want to engage directly their troops, they should at least send all the weapons they have. And certainly the US as first, because basically the US has the capabilities that, let's say, France or even the UK certainly have not. So we have to send long-range missiles, we have... To, to send uh, fighter jets, uh, we have to send all the tanks that we have, that we should do. Because myself, that's a very, I will say, personal feeling, but I expressed that, uh, you know, quite often in some of my pieces. I feel really a kind of guilt. And the guilt is that we haven't saved dozens of thousands of Ukrainian lives. Basically, we could have do. Hence, we should have done. I think we should have saved those lives. And each day of the war that passes means more Ukrainian lives sacrifice. And from a strategic point of view, it means that you may have a kind of fatigue 
not mostly, I would say, of the Western people, but of the Western leaders. And when I see uh, still some uh, uh, governments in the West, including in the US, but also in France, Germany, suggesting that there could be peace talks or negotiations one day, even if they refuse to say, well, not no, etc., they say that very clearly, but with Russia, without mentioning if it is with Putin's Russia or another Russia. I feel that very shameful. And I feel that they really do not have understood the reality of Putin's regime. There could be no kind of agreement with this regime. There must be a full defeat. And I would say that uh, we must seek a full defeat of Russia, not only for the sake of Ukraine, but also for the sake of Georgian people, Belarusian people, Syrian people, Chechens, and also for the sake of our own countries in the West. So there must be a plan to defeat Russia. And of course, we have to plan for regimes in, in Russia. Certainly, it won't be a very easy thing, but we will, must continue in the years to come, certainly to manage Russia very carefully, not to leave the sanctions. And we have to try to also to, to, to make a plan for the future of Russia. It won't be easy, it will take long, it's very uncertain that I agree fully. But we have to think that. But the first thing is to defeat Russia and before the end of the war to make Ukraine fully win this war. Uh, and I think that's, that, that's the key question, because just imagine that we had on February 24th, 2024, a second anniversary of this war. We will have all the US, Canadian, Japanese, EU leaders saying, okay, it's absolutely awful, we will continue uh, you know, to support Ukraine, whatever it takes. That was the formula used. That will be a shame. A real shame. Nicolas Tanzer, thank you very much for these strong words and thank you for this conversation. My pleasure. Thank you, Volodymyr. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times, by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. The goal of this series is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can support also our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine. Thank you.